welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. So welcome back to the Define the Relationship podcast. Uh, we are breaking a bit from our our uh, going chapter by chapter with Peter Enns' book, How the Bible Actually Works, and we have a bit of a bonus episode today. We are glad to in, to invite uh, Brad Jersak into our midst here in the uh, outdoor backyard studio um, late on a Friday afternoon, and uh Brad is no stranger to, to us here at Seeds Church, um, but to give you a bit of background about who he is right now, Brad is Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University, which happens to be the university that Darlene is doing her master's at. Woohoo! Um, he is also, I think you're still editor-in-chief of the Christianity Without Religion magazine. No, I'm just like a, anymore, a, right? I'm just a contracted editor now. Okay. And I do layout stuff, and so you're no longer the chief editor. You no. are okay. Okay, you are got you demoted? I, it's I. I don't have control of di- over the direction, okay, or content anymore. Okay. So I said, let's make this a little more arm's length. To be honest about what I do and don't do there, okay. so I'm still part of the part of the crew and all of that. But okay, yeah. And you are married to Eden. I am the better half, as they say. The better half. In this case, quite true. So we know Brad from many of his books, um, a selection of them, Can You Hear Me?, which was uh, his first significant book on listening prayer, Stricken by God, which deals with um, the theology of atonement, and Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which deals with the theology of hell. And um, more recently, he's on a bit of an epic um, run here with uh, the book A More Christ-Like God, more recently A More Christ-Like Way, and f- the forthcoming soon... More Christ-Like Word. The More Christ-Like Word. Yeah. And so, uh, and today I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that Brad is learning in writing that book, and but more more kind of like hot off the presses, whoop, literally... Brad has released, um, co-authored with Paul Young, a novella fiction called The Pastor, A Crisis. And I'm looking at the, at the cover right now, and it's a very, very pained crisis that this pastor is having. Yeah, a full-on meltdown, shall we say. Yes. Yeah. Um, three years ago, we were sitting on Brad's deck in Abbotsford on a little bit of a mini sabbatical. And Brad was writing this this novel, and I teased Brad that the subtitle of the book, I don't know if you had a title at the, at the time, probably no. not, but uh, I thought the subtitle was, uh, should be something like, hopefully this is as big as the shack. And um, it seems like Brad went and out, outdid that suggestion because he decided well, he might as well hedge his bets and he should bring Paul Young on board with this project. The yeah. author of The Shack. The author of The Shack, for those know. who yeah, don't know. And um, I don't know, do you think having Paul Young as part of this isn't going to be a bit of a drag on sales? <laughs> it, it, it probably should help a fair bit. Um, not only because 
he's a known quantity in fiction, but also it, he just made it a better book. I'd say he took it from good to beautiful. And so that's, uh, I'm really grateful. And we're dear friends. And so that every step of the way, he keeps saying, this is fun. This is fun. I'm like, it is fun. And it should be fun. And so, which is a little weird, too, because it's a very dark book. It, we have adult Trier warnings on it. Imagine R-rated Christian materials. So, because um, we look at heavy stuff. And yet. Uh, I believe people, some people could find healing as they read it. And especially folks from the recovery community will identify elements of their story with some of the characters. Looking so, forward to reading it. Yeah. And it's just, your first novel, right? It's my first novel, yeah. Yeah. And so just to put a plug in that maybe going with the audio version of it might be interesting too because it's actually live voice acted. Yeah. It, Paul Young actually thinks that that the audiobook is the thing to get first. For, I I don't know if I agree. I think maybe because it, it's really dramatic actors who who brought their passion to the story. And one of the characters is my was played by my son Dominic. So I'm especially proud of that. But all of the actors are just the the rest are professionals who've done a beautiful job on the characters. So it's like listening to a movie and seeing the scenes in your mind. So where would you get access to the audio version? Is it out already or it's on its way? It's on its way. So you can pre-buy hard copies or Kindle, but all three formats should be available September 1st through Amazon and Audible. Sounds good. Here's hoping. So, I mean, we happen to be living in this COVID-19 situation, so it's probably good to ask the question, how are you doing yeah, I'm doing really well. I, I want to first of all acknowledge that some people are finding it really hard and traumatic. And we've had that come close to home as Eden's mom passed away during it in isolation. And that was really tough on her dad and on the family. But as for Eden and I directly, um, it's been like an intervention on my overly busy travel schedule. And suddenly all my gigs for nine months have just been canceled. And it is so good for our marriage. And I was also pretty fried on travel. And even though I'm not a shy person, I am an introvert. So I'm not feeling um, that that the alone time has been hard for me at all. In fact, it allowed me to finish the current book on about the Bible. And we have a really nice deck where <laughs> couples can socially distance uh, visit us and or whatever, small <laughs> groups like that. So we're not even lonely. So... Overall, it's been a reset in my life to a better rhythm, and I'm grateful. It's given so many people permission to pull back. Yeah, and needed to, hey? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, we're still smarting a little bit about the trip that we were having. You're going to lead in March that we didn't get to go on, but... That um, was pain painful. Yeah, that was painful. It was, it, was, it, was, it was so stressful, too thinking we had to make a decision about it when in fact there was no decision it was just taken out of our hands but you were like what should we do it's like well what do you you don't have to do anything this will be yeah and that but that's very sad we'll get to it though right you're gonna come maybe spring we'll see 2022 we'll see we'll see <laughs> so Brad, we've been uh, we've been doing this define the relationship podcast in relationship to the Bible um, 
for about for about ten weeks now, and um, interacting with um, Peter Enz's book, How the Bible Actually Works, and um, we're surprised to learn a couple of weeks ago that you too were writing a book about um, your relationship to the Bible and how to help people um, find their way to relating to the Bible in maybe some new and some maybe some old fresh ways. And um, we kind of picked up on this. I don't know if you're aware of the define the relationship idiom. Um, it's uh, you the actually DTR. have a, the DTR, which I, maybe it's a Manitoba thing or something. I think it might be, a, but I understand what you mean because yeah. I do have a chapter um, where I use the phrase as the chapter title, what are we? And it's like for that awkward time in a relationship when someone asks you, like, are are we, like, still in the friend zone or what's going on here, right? And I find that that same need to redefine my relationship to the Bible came up. Very, and so I'm totally resonating with where you're going on this. It's quite, it's quite, we're in sync that way. Yeah, I think often, I don't even know where we first heard it, but it's like, yeah, probably from our kids who talked about, you know, after they'd been on a date a few times, well, we're going to have a DTR. Okay. You know? What are we? Yeah, yeah. What is, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so why don't we start there? So define your relationship to the Bible. Um, so as it shifted, uh, I grew up hearing that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's our final authority for faith and practice, that it's inerrant, infallible, and inspired, every word is true, and that, in fact, it is the eternal word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword and able to, you know, and um, I would say that through the years, I've taken that very seriously, and in fact, as a very young boy, fell in love with the scriptures, and had a sense as a child of illumination of the scriptures, where I've I could be wrong, but I felt like, oh, I get this, and I know that I get it because of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And I did a lot of Bible memorization as a kid and was fascinated with the stories and all of that. So the problem, though, um, was initially uh, became problematized in two ways. One was I was seeing how the Bible was replacing the voice of God. In fact, told it was the voice of God. In fact, the only voice of God that we should be listening to, despite what the Bible itself says. So when I got into listening prayer, I, I realized that the Bible itself points to the voice of the Holy Spirit in us as a valid means of conversation with God. It's not just about reading this book. So that shifted. And I'm like, it's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, but the Bible brings something of a testimony, like a, inner, like a prophet, right? The second thing that happened to me was beginning to, to see how parts of the Bible were so unchristlike, And that, in fact, it's Jesus who's the Word of God. So what do you do when the living Word of God comes into conflict with parts of the written scriptures? And that's where we have to do the DTR. Hmm. How am I going to relate to those, especially those scriptures, which say things that Christ himself challenges, especially about his father? Hmm. 
And um, there's a couple ways you can redefine the relationship. One is to break up. And I think a lot of my friends have, whether intentionally or just functionally. Mm -hmm. I just, I can't read this anymore. Especially if they find those kind of what we call toxic texts traumatizing. Mm -hmm. But another way that you could approach it is to say, let's not throw the Bible out, but could we redefine the relationship and relearn how to read it uh, from the ancient Christians who actually gathered the Bible? Maybe they have something to show us. Especially, like, how did the uh, Jesus and the apostles themselves read those texts? Hmm. And so the joke I open my book with is, uh, I believe the word of God is inspired and fallible and inerrant. And when he was about 18 years old, he grew a beard. <laughs> In other words, the word that is the double-edged sword in Hebrews 4, the following verse says he, not it. Jesus is the word of God. And the scriptures point to that word in a lot of crazy word, ways that are troubling. So I'll, I'll pause there because I just went off. But no. there was a, There's a lot there. Yeah. So let me just, if I can just pull back a Please. little bit more. What... Um, how would you define your relationship to the Bible right now, currently? Right now, currently, I see it as an epic saga written by a host of narrators, including crazy characters through divergent worldviews that comes to this beautiful climax in the person of Jesus who in a sense then the divine author enters the story hmm. and brings clarity to all the places where the narrators were even mistaken hmm. but we're on to something so and I really learned about this when I was writing a novel and I realized that my the narrator in the novel was not an extension of me as an author. The narrator is an extension of the characters. Hmm. So when you've got the narrator saying that God said to Samuel, go slaughter the Amalekites, you're not hearing God's point of view. You're hearing Samuel's point of view through the narrator. Hmm. So Don Quixote's book, um, what was it? Or Don Quixote is the book by Cervantes. Yes, yes yeah. In Don Quixote, you have these notorious, this notorious phenomenon of unreliable narrators hmm. who can disagree with each other, mm. who are extending the point of view and the worldview of these crazy characters. But I still believe there's a divine author behind it, breathing something through that ultimately... In this polyphony of voices, polyphony, like multiple voices, that it raises this tension that requires God to come in the flesh, the author to enter the story and do the, do the big reveal. When I see it that way, then every page of the scriptures utterly fascinates me. Hmm. And I just under, and so I love the scriptures more now than I ever had because I see. Oh my goodness, the inspired genius going on, even within the toxic texts where the text itself is critiquing 
the thing it's talking about. Like, let's say, the book of Joshua. I used to hate the book of Joshua in terms of my relationship. Now I'm in love with it because I'm going, this book about religious conquest, the book is a critique of that. Hmm. It's not a propaganda for it. So already now I'm looking for Jesus. Where is he in this story? Is he... Is he is he in Joshua's arm as he's striking down his enemies? No, he's in the blood, in the veins of Rah- of Rahab the harlot, who will be become part of his family tree. So I, anyway, my relationship then it's it's just like I feel more fascinated by it. I am reading it way more carefully. I'm appreciating the genius I see, but including all of the ways that Paul says these aren't all revelations of God. A lot of them are revelations of the human condition. Hmm. And as revelations of the human condition, they are cautionary tales about the ways we create false images of God that, again, require God to show up in the story to say, well, you've heard it said, but I say. Hmm. Does that mean I throw out those awful passages? Oh, no, I need them because I hold them up as mirrors now. So that's another way I relate to the scriptures. That it's a mirror that is held up in front of me and says, look at how you are the voice of the foolish friends of Job. Or look at how you are the voice of Samuel calling for genocide and then putting that in God's mouth. And how do I know that it wasn't God? Well, because we have Jesus. Hmm. Right. So like I, I was just thinking as you're talking about how like one of our anchors at Seeds is um, we have, or sorry, it's one of our values to be connected, open, connected, and responsive. And um, in the past episodes of the podcast, we've sometimes talked about, you know, various metaphors for how we relate to the Bible or how we were taught to relate to the Bible, you yep. know, from the rule book or a recipe, a cookbook, um, um, to, you know, what I, it, it still sort of feels like sometimes, um, you refer to a saga. Like, yeah. So there's like an invitation to enter into like a dramatic Yeah. It's the drama story. of redemption. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it this way. Like when you read Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter, or mm-hmm. some of these books. There's some dark parts to it, and some people some people in the book mm-hmm. do some bad things. Mm-hmm. Well, should we get rid of Sauron and all his chapters from Lord of the Rings? Should we, should we take... Um, who's the bad guy in Harry Potter again? Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Oh, Voldemort's bad. We shouldn't have him in the book. It's like, come on. Mm-hmm. And so we read the saga and we see that different people have played different parts and that the narrators express those parts in radical ways. And then you, but you have a hero. And here's the difference. Although Gandalf is raised from the dead and Harry Potter's raised from the dead, I'm not going to worship them. Here's the crazy thing about our saga. It enters history. And, and I believe in a historical resurrection of the, of the son of God as, as so it touches and because it enters history as saga, it becomes my story in some ways. Hmm. So 
Yeah, so it's not just a saga that you're like reading about from a distant perspective. It's like it's part it becomes part of your story. So the connection yeah. is it's it sounds like is intimate. It's very intimate. And in, in, in strange ways too. Like so it's not just well, oh, the story comes to a climax in Jesus and now he's loves me and blah blah blah. But here'd be a way where it, it's uh it's bi directional. So on Sundays when I'm at the Orthodox Church, there's part of the service where we're reading some of the Psalms. And we're reading some of the angry Psalms. And I realize that I am entering the story and the, those angry Psalms are given their proper place in the saga. So here's how you read them. You've got this angry person who wants vengeance on his enemies. And we're like, oh, that shouldn't be in the Bible. Of course it should be. This is Adam and Eve locked outside the garden. This is the apostles locked outside the tomb. And I'm going to play that part knowing that in a few hours, the tomb is open and I'm welcome back in paradise. But I enter that part. And now here's the crazy thing. As I'm saying those angry psalms, knowing that in two hours we'll hear the gospel, Faces are coming to mind from my life. Like, uh oh. <laughs> and it's surfaced those parts of me that are still Adam and still the locked out ones. And and then um as Walter Brueggemann says, um I begin to realize that these Psalms are the authentic prayers of someone who is living in this world right now. Hmm. That if you're in Burma and you're being persecuted, and your village has been burnt down, these psalms make perfect sense to them. But maybe they make perfect sense to me, too, in some of my personal tragedies or whatever. And I need to get that part of that angry part of me out on... So now now I've really entered the story, right? Mm -hmm. But also, because I enter that place in the story, I'm not stuck there. And so again, in in two hours, I'm going to be unstuck, and malice will have been purged from me. By entering the drama. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. So, I wonder if you, I mean, this, this is a very um, evocative, the way you talk about, about the saga. And I wonder if, I mean, one of the, the things, just thinking from a pastoral standpoint, and thinking about interacting with people, and also thinking maybe even our own story of how the Bible has been misused in in our faith life, how the Bible has been a cudgel or it's been a, um, a social, uh, kind of disciplining sort of, um, tool to keep people together and, um, on the same page. And, and maybe in some cases to get people who are in power to stay in power and to, to, uh, to bring about things that they want to see happen. And so a big part of people's biblical experiences around how the Bible has been an authority that needs to be trusted and obeyed, taken seriously by that meaning, um, do what it says, uh, don't ask questions, these, these kinds, of, kinds of things. And so authority is very important. But a lot of people have been rethinking not only their faith, but their relationship with the Bible. And it seems like the Bible and the rethinking of their faith are very interlinked. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, I know in, in your past book, um, A More Christ-Like Way, you have quite a bit of a conversation around deconstruction and 
how do we deal with questioning faith, coming to new understandings and things like that. Um, it feels like the Bible is often sort of kind of a big part of that um, reimagining faith for people. And so it's need to be put aside or put up on the shelf for a while or maybe even rejected completely. These things are easy because they seem to be wedded together, that the faith that one is walking away from and questioning is very linked to the Bible. And it's almost like the Bible has been used to reinforce that way of thinking. Um, do you want to speak kind of more to like kind of the pastoral question of how do you help people re-engage the saga, recognizing that it's often been used in a way that's actually been destructive to people and, 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 their, and their beings? Yeah, <clears throat> I do recognize that. The misuse of scripture as a cudgel. I, I'm sad about that because it's not actually the Bible that's the problem at that point. It's mm -hmm. an immature, literalistic read of the Bible. Uh, one of the early church fathers said, if you're going to read the Bible in that way, literalistically, I don't mean literally mm -hmm. to them in the early church didn't mean what it means now. Literally right. just right. meant the first layer of reading is that you try to identify what the author meant. That's literal. Hmm. But then you're not done. Then you go to a moral sense of the reading, and that wasn't moralistic. It was more like, how does this story make you more like Christ? Hmm. And then they went to a spiritual reading, which wasn't just spiritualizing. It was saying, in what way does this book point to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus? So hmm. you've got this... But but people just were told that faithfulness to the Bible was reading it literalistically. Mm -hmm. In other words, well, you read the words and it clearly says this, and then you obey it as it, and it, it's just a, a horrendous way to read. But if that's all you've known, it's absolutely abusive. You know, it's how we kept women silent. You know, because we, uh, it's how. It, it was the roots of a lot of xenophobia and and racism and and moralism that's so crushing. And this is what Jesus is up against everywhere he goes in the Gospel of John. He comes and he says, "I'm, um, you know, we're going to turn water into wine here." And they're like, and, and the the picture is he's using these ceremonial religious jugs and the water in them, and he changes it to wine that's just so tasty. And this becomes his hermeneutic. Hermeneutic just means your interpretive method. So in the next chapter, uh, John 3, he meets Nicodemus, and Nicodemus tri is tripping on literalism. How do I go in my mother's womb again? And Jesus like, it's not about that. It's about being born from above. Then he meets the woman at the well. She's like, what do you mean you're, there's water that... You, you don't even have a jug, you know. He's like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a spring inside of you. Um, oh, and the cleansing of the temple there. It's like, the, what do you mean the temple be destroyed and built in three days? That's not. So he's always bumping into this literalism, mm -hmm. which Paul calls, calls reading by the letter, which is to say, he says, a, con, a ministry of condemnation. So here we are. We made an idol of reading literally. Mm -hmm. And what did we get? Ministry of condemnation. That's what has traumatized people. I'm wanting to say, well, you could throw out the Bible then, but what if you just throw out that stupid way of reading 
and and so um and so i think part of my part of my job is is to just say can i remind you of the way people used to read the bible the ones who gathered the bible who who gave us the doctrine of the trinity and the deity of christ who gave us which books would be in the new testament they had a way of reading hmm. that i call the emmaus way so pastorally I want to teach people the Emmaus way. And what I mean by that is on the road to Emmaus, Jesus just says this. Um, all uh, Moses, the prophets, and all of the scriptures are about me. Hmm. To the degree they're not about Jesus, we have no business in that book. You don't. No good Jew reads the Bible on their own. They have a community and they have a rabbi. Well, so do we. And our rabbi is Jesus, and he says it's about him. So if you read 1 Samuel 15 without reference to Jesus, I can just tell you you're not reading it the way Jesus did, so that's probably a bad idea. So don't be surprised if you're triggered. But if we do ask, how is this about Jesus? Hmm. Then, And how is it about our story? So that's a side thing I want to say mm-hmm. is... um. That, that when we read as community, the church has shown us how to how to read as a community in the terms of when do you read what. And so one example I can use, when someone is suffering from an illness and they're praying like mad to be cured of it. Let's say you have chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And I'm like does the Bible have anything to say about this? I'm like, well, actually, yeah. And so I'll get the person just to pray Psalm 6 out loud and how their their pillow is drenched with tears and it feels like their body is wasting away and their bones are on fire. And how long, oh Lord, and why? And suddenly, suddenly they have words and they're allowed to say the words to God and they didn't have, they didn't know the words and they didn't even know they're, that that's okay to talk like that, right? And so... I'm using the Bible pastorally all the time in that way. Yeah, I just one of the things that kind of was striking me when you're talking about, I mean, this this the stuff around how the early church fathers and mothers read the scriptures yep. to me is really fascinating because we've tended, I mean, even as good Anabaptist Mennonites, we tend to get fixated going back about 500, 550 years. Yeah, you know, in, in our thinking about how to how to you know it's sort of like everything starts and ends at the reformation and yeah. in our case the radical reformation and um these early church fathers and mothers are just they're just foreign to us in terms of recognition and stuff like that so this is really fascinating and yet at the same time there's something about that pointing back so far and to how the church read the scriptures, the early church that um, feels a little complicated, especially with, you know, with contemporary people who are trying to find an authentic faith when they're coming, they're coming out of a kind of a de- they want to de church or they, they've, they've dealt with toxic religion in their growing up and stuff like that. And it just feels like any time you talk about Bible church it's like you're talking about the reasons for their issues in the first place yeah and um and even some of these 
I mean, some of these people that you're you're talking about and the church traditions that they recognize, they're traditions that have oppressed women for a long time yep. and um, were the powers, you know, like, I mean, we talked about how scripture could be used to sort of hold people in power. I mean, these were people to some extent that were in power and it, it, it feels a little tricky at times. I mean, I, I don't think there's any maybe easy answers to this question, but I wonder how do you, um, how do you sort of deal with the, you know, these, calls to authority the church all this kind of stuff when they kind of feel a bit like well they're sort of um they're powerful they're they're um they haven't always been on the right side of some of the things that we think are important today yeah how do you wrestle with that well the more i read read them the easier it gets <laughs> but let's let's so here'd be one principle i'll give you a few principles that help me there one principle is that they were clear about what the gospel is and you needed to be clear about the gospel before you opened the bible hmm. and they got this from earlier so Plato's critique of Homer is that the gods in Homer's pantheon of gods were liars, they were fickle, they were manipulators, they were killers. And Plato says, this is not worthy of God. Hmm. God, if there's a God, that God is good only. And that goodness manifests as beauty, truth, and justice mediated by love into this world. And so why are we teaching our children about these awful gods, right? And especially literalistically, right? And then Philo of Alexandria was a Jew who died during the time when Jesus grew up. So this is like Jesus' time, and the Jews are looking at the same thing, and they're going, man, Plato had it. He had an idea here. If we read about Yahweh literally in our scriptures, he sounds too much like Zeus. We need mm. to decide before we open the scrolls that our God is good, Yahweh is good, and all he does is goodness, and anything that you attribute to him that would be violent or ugly or oppressive, um, you, can't, you can't read it that way. Hmm. You have to come up with an allegory or something. But they knew before they opened the scrolls that he's only good, right? The Christians then picked up on this. And Jesus, so how about Jesus? Mm -hmm. Here's his principle then. He says, um, John 10.10, 10, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I've come that you'd have life in that abundantly. And by the way, I am. Oh, here's <laughs> Yahweh in the flesh telling us who God is. And it's like, so before you open the Bible, you better have this settled in your mind, that Jesus has revealed God as completely about life-giving and never about death dealing. Okay, now open your Bible. Wait a minute, here's the death dealing. Yeah, there's death dealing, but we already know the gospel. Mm -hmm. We've already made up our minds on this before we read the Bible, so we better figure out what the death dealing is, but here's what we know it isn't. We know it's not God. So, so what I'm saying, and then the early church does the same thing, even though they're like... Uh, Especially, especially like, let's say, second and third 
and even fourth century, um, they really had this in their mind. What is worthy of God? Hmm. Well, the gospel is. And that's how they decided what would be in the, in the New Testament. They're, there's debates about it. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, whatever it is, it has to be consistent with this gospel. So that's so, so they would never they would never have said something like kind of the Calvinists of our time would say in that, like, well, I mean, God is God and whatever God does is is a good thing, even if from our own human perspective, it seems like that seems like abusive or yeah. or or vengeful or or, or whatever. They would, they, they never, would never have said that. something like that. They would have said, we know that if, if there is a God, God would be perfect and pure and good. And yeah. and if this doesn't line up, then there's something else going on here. Right. So they were they really were into like First John where it says, in him is light and and there is no darkness at all. And they understood light to be light and darkness to be moral. Hmm. And so you could not attribute any moral darkness or to God, anything that there is, he's good and him is no ungoodness at all. He's Christ-like and in him is no unchristlike. And so they would, they would say this. Um, so even anything we say about God, we know we're limited by human language and anthropomorphisms. That is attributing human traits to God. They said, if you, so when, it, when the Bible says that God is angry or wrathful, you cannot take it literally. Hmm. Because that is not worthy of God, and it's not Christ-like. And in fact, they said, so I, I mean, all of these guys, St. Antony the Great, Ambrose, um, um, Cassian, um, I've just got a huge list of them that I do commentary in my book on. One after another and after another said, if you, if you, if you say God is literally angry, or wrathful, which means anger expressed as violence. That's what wrath means. Hmm. Even if the Bible says it, he's wrathful, you can't take it literally, or you're creating an idol and committing a monstrous blasphemy. Well, then how do we take it? And they would just say, well, it's, a, it's an anthropomorphism for the wages of sin. Hmm. It's not God wrathing you. It's the consequences of your own sin. It's like, well... You can read it that way. You must read it that way because hmm. to read it otherwise is not Christ-like. And they were so, we were joking off, off, off the air about, about this word clear, right? Hmm. Well, they were really clear and unanimous about that. <laughs> and so now that means I know before I read the Bible, oh, look at this, this passage where it says God is really angry and he's going to wipe you out. It's like, I already know that's not a problem. Because Jesus has shown us, John has shown us, the fathers have shown us, this is just a metaphor for our own implosions, hmm. the self-destructive consequences of our own sin. And well, what you know, and that even within the Bible, you see God's relationship to wrath change. Mm-hmm. This is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. In the Bible, you can watch the change. Never mind the fathers. So it's like early, early faith. They're like. If you sin, God is angry and he wraths you. A little later, it's, if you sin, God is angry, but he can't wrath you because that would put blood on his hands and God can't have blood. So he sends the destroyer to wrath you. It's his God's hitman. Hmm. And then a little later, it's like, hang on a second. We need to redefine God's relationship to the destroyer because we think the destroyer is Satan. 
So you sin. Let's and the define dis- the relationship between exactly. God and Satan. Exactly. <laughs> so the wrath becomes a metaphor for Satan even before Christ comes along. Mm-hmm. And so in a book called Wisdom of Solomon, which is in all Christian Bibles till the Reformation, we decide to take it out 1,500 years after the fact. Bad idea. <laughs> in there, it just says that God sends his Messiah to destroy the wrath hmm. and overcome, and to overcome the destroyer. Oh, so now the destroyer and the wrath and Satan are an enemy. They're not God's hitman, and the Messiah has come to defeat them. Hmm. And, then, and then Jesus... It's the and it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys, and then finally, Book of Revelation. Oh, the destroyer! That's Abaddon. He comes out of the pit. So, it's this gorgeous development of mm-hmm. thought over thousands of years. But here's what we wanted to do: I want to take one verse from the Old Testament and universalize it, and totalize it, and literalize it. It's like casting goes blasphemy. <laughs> so that's that. why those guys matter to me. Not just as authorities to mm-hmm. use on us, but like, oh, oh, they're healing my heart of ways I thought God was a destroyer. Mm-hmm. Wow. We really lost a great wisdom tradition there, didn't we? Like, like I mean, maybe maybe there's that's another podcast to say, like, why did we lose? Why did we lose that voice, the early church voice? Well, we're recovering it now. I, yeah. I got to say, like, one of the best guys on, on this was Origen. Mm-hmm. And he was treated like a heretic three centuries after his life. But I I feel like people are picking up on him again. He saw all of this stuff. He lived about 280. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, here's how you read the Bible. And you can read what he said about it on the Internet now. And just go, <laughs> Origin, Philokalia. But that's a, that's a harder one. There's other ones. Melito of Sardis, second century. And he just says, yeah, you read the whole Bible as prefiguring Jesus. When I read the whole Bible as prefiguring Jesus or as a mirror critiquing me, hmm. it all sorts out so much more easily. It's, it is kind of simple. I mean, you still have to do some work, but if it's life, it's God. And if it's death, it's not. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, just to use a, like a medical metaphor, it's almost like the Bible is both diagnosis and prescription. But you have to recognize when it's doing analysis of our condition yeah, and at times when it's actually the healing, yeah, medicine. Yeah, one. Yeah, so you could say every passage. Some may do both, but you have to. You ask the passage, "How is this about me, and how is this about Jesus?" Hmm. I, I'm thinking about. I'm gonna kind of take it back to our particular context. I'm thinking about. Our community, and particularly before COVID hit this year, we had um, a round of happy hours with our parents of young kids. Like, I don't know, sometimes like 20 plus, 25, 30 parents. Um, and although there's quite a bit of diversity, I would say there's... Um, a lot of these parents represent people that have had grown up with, you know, kind of a toxic, wrathful image of God are in a place where they're trying to decide whether Christianity still fits 
but wanting to be connected to a community, community matters to them and still kind of like, not obviously not all the way out the door, but not also all the way in the door. And one of our, like some of our amazing conversations has been around, okay, so if we're going to send our kids to quote Sunday school, whatever that is, um, what do we want them to, um, what do we want passed on? What don't we want passed on? And when it comes specifically to the Bible stories, the things that are, that are most common for, for them is the stories of the old Testament. Um, and very often the, cause kind of the messages that came along with them were, you know, God was so mad. He wanted to wipe the earth away with, uh, Noah, you know, and whatever other, other stories that are like, just like cornerstone Bible stories for kids. David and Goliath. Yeah. And so the question, the conversation that's, that's kind of come up is what if our, what if we build a curriculum just around Jesus and leave the old Testament behind? And (laughs) so this is like a bit of a, you know, you know, just general conversation with, with parents and, you know, and then Ted and I go home and go, can we leave the old Testament behind for children? You know, what, what, what would that look like? Or, you know, so as you're talking to about how we read them, even developmentally, I'm thinking about some of the questions people in our community are asking, like our kids do not need those stories now. They need to know that God loves them, that Jesus loves them, wants to be in relationship with them, is connected, you know, kind of just more Jesus-centered stories. And maybe at a later point in development, we can bring in, it's too complicated to bring in the Old Testament, you know, and expect children to sort of uh, not, see it literally because children typically hear things literally yeah. or do they, I don't know. Just, I'm curious about your perspective on, you know, cause we're actually thinking of developing our very own curriculum because so many curriculums out there for kids are cringy. Yeah. By the way, hasn't Pete developed one? He has. I he haven't has. seen it. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know if we'll include this in the podcast, but it's really great theology. Good theology, but not, not very good pedagogy. Yeah. Okay, okay. So oh, he may just up. not have, like we have, you know, 21st century, like really good teachers that are engaging with it. And it's like, this isn't going to work for kids. Okay. So b- back to gospel first, like we... Here's a weird thing to say, but it's true. The, the, the first Christians, we'll call them the first Christians, not the early church. The first mm-hmm. Christians, I'm including the very first generation. Mm-hmm. They only concluded that scripture is inspired because of the gospel. Mm-hmm. They only concluded that the scriptures are inspired because of the resurrection and saw the resurrection at work in those stories. 
they only they only adopted the Jewish scriptures as their scriptures finally because they pointed to Jesus. Hmm. So I think it is fair. We're not Jews. Very few of us are Jews. Even the Jewish Christians are Christians, <laughs> right? So I think it, despite what some ministries are saying, I think it's fair to start with, we need to clarify the gospel first, and we get that gospel from our gospels. They're the, they're the, they're the witness of who we believe God to be, finally, right? But the, their first Christians also weren't Marcionites who ditched the Old Testament. They just understood, you aren't welcome to those stories without Jesus and without reference to them as gospel stories. If you see Jesus as the point, the entire Bible becomes the New Testament. Hmm. Okay, that. so then what hmm. if you did a curriculum where you, where you just, you, you must work out the gospel from the, gos- the Gospels and introduce them to Jesus so they know who the rabbi is. Once you've firmly got that in place, you, where, where you've just absolutely saturated yourself with who God is through the lens of Jesus, then maybe you can go back to some of those stories and they sound different. Hmm. And um, if you've ever seen me do the Gospel in Chairs... We every, have. Yeah, you have, have done that at Seeds. Once so every day. story in the gospel is about people running away from God, but God loves them so much he chases them. Mm-hmm. The story of Adam and Eve is no longer about condemnation. It's about a God who goes with them into the how hard life is. That's Jesus there. So the so so Melito, he would say, he would just say, where is Jesus in this story? If you can't figure it out, it shouldn't be in the curriculum. And that's, like, really true a lot of the time for kids, right? Um, so, but I, I, would re, I, would, I would say, how does, how, does the, how does a Christian read the, the Noah story? How does a Christian read David and Goliath? How does a Christian read Jonah in the, in the fish? It's like, so Jesus says, you read the Jonah story that, Jonah was in the fish for three days, and Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Jonah came out, and so did Jesus. That's the point of the story, according to Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, but it's like we've, I mean, we've been entrenched in, you know, a teaching where we just want kids to, if we're talking about kids, to be obedient. So almost every story ended up being about being obedient to God. And you don't want to disobey God. And the moral of the story is, don't run away from God's calling, Jonah. Wow, hey. Whereas, you know who got it right on Jonah? This is was VeggieTales. Yeah. So the Twin Towers had been attacked and collapsed, right? Hmm. And then they start saber-rattling in the U.S. government about invading Iraq. Between that saber-rattling and the actual invasion of the Iraq, VeggieTales put the story of Jonah in movie theaters. It was totally from God. And it's like one of... This is the moral theme of Jonah. Um, Shouldn't God show mercy on everybody? 
even your enemies? That's the moral. Mm. But then you still aren't done. You got to do, the spiritual is that is even the you, fish slappers, Brad. Even the fish slappers, even the <laughs> even the even the guys fishing for catfish in the Red River today. You know, like so. <laughs> Those would yeah, be good fish for slapping. But but so, so now we're having a debate about what should be in the in the mm. curriculum, right? Well, that's what you should do. We need to we need to say every story. We need to work out not the moralistic legalistic thou shalt version of it but like what will make me more like jesus oh Mm. loving the iraqis which by the way is where nineveh was i mean and then here was the sad thing american evangelicals got behind the invasion of iraq even though god had spoken through jonah yet again about that lesson uh in their own movie theaters and then anyway and and so it's like you'd say that that's what your committee would do. Like, okay, we're gonna give the kids four years of gospels, and then maybe they'll be ready for Noah's Ark. What will we say about that? How is Jesus in there? It's like, oh, well, what did the first Christians say? They're like that. All the other flood stories were about God being angry and wanting to destroy the people. Every other flood story in the world, and the Jews came along, and what did they say? The flood story is about that people had destroyed the earth with violence and God's going to remake it. How is God going to remake the earth? By killing everybody. No. (laughs) By sending Jesus. Behold, I'm making all things new. It's like, what about all the drownings? It's like, well, actually, Noah was a preacher of righteousness inviting them. They could have had a whole fleet of arks, but we didn't like that idea. Hmm. We like being violent. But wait a minute, where's the ark now? Okay, this will trigger some people. <laughs> the first Christian said, it's the church. But they didn't mean, like, come to church Sunday. They meant everybody who comes into God's family can enjoy God, can be part of remaking the world. Hmm. And isn't this, and then maybe in my curriculum, I'd say, isn't it amazing that some people are remaking the earth and they don't even know they're doing God's work? Maybe we could have a community garden, you know. Like, mm-hmm. who knows, right? You could do something like that. But I, so I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. Hmm. How's the story about us? How's this about Jesus? Hmm. And if you can't figure that, but and the the gospel predetermines how we read it. Yeah, hmm. love that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, this is almost like consulting here now. We're getting, which is <laughs> is quite quite good when we can here yeah. piggyback a podcast with actually getting some like good yeah. like sound strategy there's so there's so many great you could jesus is the is the burning bush jesus is the one who showed up in the mm. fiery furnace and burned the and burned the ropes off them i wonder what our and you got it that i think there's a place when do we start teaching children to read metaphorically hmm. they're not i think we've we think kids are idiots if we think they can only read it literally. But if they need to be trained in metaphor, they can be. Hmm. Uh, very young children, you go, what are the ropes around you? Oh, bullying at school. Okay, they've got it. Yeah. What? If, what's the big enemy that puts you in your house? Oh, you're like, COVID. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> they, you know, hi. 
Hey. This is the time in we our podcast just, you know, when Joe the dog, dog comes over. Joining us oh, here. You know? <laughs> yep. Who's the good boy? I think, I think I think Brad is like Francis. You know, <laughs> You're the animals the good are coming boy. to him. Today, how's it going? That's because he wants to get on the podcast. No, no problem. That was a highlight of the thing. No blood, no foul, they say. <laughs> literally. <laughs> that was an enjoyable moment. I'm glad I wasn't eaten. Yeah, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> Speaking of Daniel. <laughs> I don't know how long we've been, but maybe Oh, we it's about we we oh, it's been an hour. Yeah, so we should. We, we should. Nile. Nile. <laughs> It feels like it's pizza time. So should, this is seeds, eh? Speaking of fiery furnaces. I just want to say I love seeds so much. I'm so proud of you. I brag about you all the time. Really? And uh, I'm so grateful to have Dar in my, as a student now that I can. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that because Dar is actually a student of Brad's, like we could kind of treat this podcast like a, like a parent-teacher interview, <laughs> you know, like a, spo- <laughs> a spousal teacher interview, you know, oh, like, you. Do, you know, how... Hey, and if anyone else wants to get their MA, you can have a bachelor's in anything. And if you want your MA without quitting your job or moving, mm-hmm. just ask Dar. Yeah. <laughs> she'll, she'll set you straight. It's been good, except for all the d- disappointments. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Tell me about it. Oh. COVID disappointments, just to be clear. Yeah. Not, just uh, to be not school disappointments. Yeah. COVID. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a that's a good like out, out thing is like this matters these days because our reading of the Bible if we do if we do it right, we will not conclude that COVID is a punishment from God. Mm. That's a crass reading of the Bible whereas Jesus said, "Oh, it doesn't work that way." Mm. God is generous and kind even to the ignorant and rebellious. He makes the sunshine and the and the rainfall and all on, on everyone. And he he's a, he he wants to bless, but sometimes life is really hard. And where is he in it? He's with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I really appreciate that one. I, if I if I have a takeaway from this conversation, that question: What will make me more like Jesus as I read this story? Be it an Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. Um, what a beautiful lens to to reframe and and gather what leads us in that direction. And it may be, it may be uh, just a hard word to us that's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of like that. Yep. I'm kind of like that. I need I need healing from that. And in some cases, um, it's pointing to something that's beyond what's going on. Yeah, and in those passages that offend you, it's done its job. Those passages were meant to offend you, hmm. and now you're more like Jesus. Hmm. You're wel- your conscience is welcome <laughs> to the Bible. In fact, it's required. Thanks so much, Brad. Welcome. How about that pizza? How about that pizza? (laughs) (laughs) We have enjoyed this conversation with with a beer, and now we're going to enjoy more conversation with some pizza in the wood fire. (laughs) Root beer. (laughs) Just like Jerry Falwell Jr. It's It's just a prop. Uh, Thanks for joining us. See you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye.